Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. But you've done enough. Have you no sense of decency, sir? At long last, have you left no sense of decency? Hello and welcome to episode 9 of American History 2. This week we turn our attention to a period in American history that has become indelibly linked to one man, the second Red Scare, and of course, Senator Joseph McCarthy. But is McCarthy the be-all and end-all of anti-communism? What influence did he really have? And were there other figures in the United States who played more prominent and, and important roles in creating what the historian David Cout called the Great Fear? To muse upon these topics, I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Dr Malcolm Craig. Hello Mark, and yes I would agree, I think it's very important to consider the place and importance of McCarthy and how McCarthyism wasn't simply about the, the actions and ambitions of, of one man and hopefully we'll be able to give an insight into why this is the case during the next half hour or so. Indeed, indeed. And so the second Red Scare, as I said, it doesn't just happen in a vacuum. There's a whole global situation to consider. Right, so so as you know, inevitably, uh, as frequent listeners will probably know, this is going to kick us into two-minute worldwide context mode. Um, and now, Malcolm, I timed how long you took the last two-minute one, and it was actually over four minutes. Uh, so I'm going to be watching this very carefully. Uh, so what's happen, happening to America and the rest of the world that helps kick-start this Red Scare? Well, I mean, in the, the post-World War II environment, you have the, the emerging Cold War, and we could spend an entire podcast, an entire series of podcasts on the origins of the Cold War. Suffice to say, in the, the post-World War II environment, because of the power vacuum in Europe, because of ideological differences, uh, because of the atom bomb, uh, because of the way that uh, different allies are acting, for all sorts of reasons, the Cold War emerges, and by... By popular agreement, about 1947 is the Cold War, really starts when Harry Truman espouses the doctrine of containment with his Truman Doctrine. Uh, now, you could trace the Cold War back a long way to the Russian Revolution, American mistrust of that revolution through the 1930s, the temporary alliance in World War II. But by 46, 47, for various reasons, the Cold War is on and America is facing the Soviet Union. Uh, the Soviet Union is, in '47 not a, an atomic power yet, but a very powerful state controlled by a powerful dictator in the form of Joseph Stalin. Uh, and the ideologies of both these states are antithetical to each other. One cannot exist with the other. American capitalism, essentially, when you boil it down, versus Soviet communism. And it's important to recall that both see themselves as universal. They both see themselves as modern and universal and are applicable worldwide. So there's all sorts of stuff going on. You have events like the Berlin blockade. Uh, the Cold War is emerging as an actual conflict, not a hot war. But it's emerging as a conflict. 
And the Truman administration has to present communism as a threat to allow it to enact containment, to spend the money on propping up, for example, uh, Greek anti-communist monarchists and all these kind of things. So communism is presented as the big threat through various administration propaganda and all that kind of thing. But obviously American anti-communism isn't happening in isolation. There's a tradition uh, of this in America. You know, we can, we can take it back into the, you know, the, yeah. the 20s and into the World War II period as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you had the, what, the first Red Scare, was it, sort of 1919? 1919, 1920, yeah. 1919, 1920, which, remember, that, that helps to launch the career of uh, Mr. Edgar, uh, J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah, J. Edgar Hoover gets uh, uh, Palmer, the Attorney General, organised the famous Palmer raids against subversives and communists and all that kind of thing. And Hoover is the civil servant that's put in charge of basically organising this. And this gives him his big opportunity mm-hmm. and he becomes a hugely influential figure. And we'll come back to Hoover, I'm sure. Yeah, and obviously the, the Great Depression, which we talked about last week, you know, that sort of it increases the number of actual, you know, like members of the Communist Party in America because, you know, people are turning to more radical solutions to combat the Great Depression. And also the New Deal many conservatives see that as like sort of creeping communism or like, you know, the secret communists in the New Deal government are helping to like kind of have launched the New Deal and launch America to the left and closer to Russia. And if not communism, then certainly socialism, which when we get to the the, the second bed scare, socialism and communism are the same thing uh, for the anti-communists. They're, they're indivisible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, at this time, for example, it, Truman, Harry Truman's big idea is the fair deal. And one of the key pillars of the fair deal is healthcare for Americans. You know, the less ambitious uh, kind of way of is healthcare for elderly Americans. But I'm sure at one point Truman considered sort of the, the British model of the NHS. Um, but, you know, uh, conservatives and doctors mobilized together to label it as socialized medicine, which, you know, sank it. <laughs> you know, that was. That, that was the end of that proposal because it was it was tainted with socialism and as you say that links to the Soviets and communism at this time. But given what we kind of I touched on in the introduction, I want to get back to McCarthyism, right? Now I know one of your pet peeves is students answering a question about McCarthyism and talking solely about Joe McCarthy um, and not the wider phenomenon of the Red Scare or what's been called the Great Fear. Um, in that sense, do you think McCarthyism is more of a help or a hindrance? You know, have, have, have historians failed to capture the era with this label? I, I think it's a hindrance because it places undue emphasis on the activities of, of one individual and it makes it appear as if his activities and his methods and the way he went about his, his anti-communist witch hunt, for want of a better term, is wholly representative of what anti-communism in America was at this time. But is he not a good figurehead for us to think about the era, you know, the sort of, the, the wild accusations, the, you know, like spreading the kind of sense of fear. And I mean, there's no denying Joe McCarthy at one point, kind of in probably about 1951, 1952, seems invincible. You know, that he is the spokesperson, like we, we call different eras by presidents when they dominate the political landscape. Surely McCarthy for a couple of years is exercising that type of influence. Well, I mean, I think there's no denying his importance within the political and cultural landscape of America. But again, I think, I mean, a more important figure in actually promoting anti-communism and actually taking genuine action against, in air quotes, communists in government, 
and in the teaching profession and everything and that kind of thing is J. Edgar Hoover, who we mentioned in the context of the first Red Scare. Hoover is America's leading anti-communist. He is the power and authority of an entire federal organization in the form of the Federal Bureau of Investigation behind him. And he uses that to promote his anti-communist agenda. I would argue that, that Hoover is the leading anti-communist in America. McCarthy is a, is a prominent so, public would you, figure. Would you be happier with Hooverism? Would that make you happier? Yes, actually, yes. It, it would be Hoover. Because I, I genuinely think that in terms of what he actually does, in concrete terms of you know, action taken... Give us some of those concrete terms. What in concrete terms does J. Edgar Hoover do? So I think the historian uh, Vaudrey Jeffries-Jones and uh, his excellent uh, history of the FBI called uh, The FBI, A History, uh, which is from 2007, uh, is, is an, has an excellent summation of what the FBI and Hoover more generally do. And he's talking about this within the context of various espionage scandals. Uh, I think of Elizabeth Bentley, uh, the Red Spy Queen, as she was known, who became a public figure in 1948 after admitting spying for the, the Soviets. Uh, people like uh, Klaus Fuchs, the naturalised German-British atomic scientist who spied within the Manhattan Project. And then in 1946, the affair of Igor Gizhenko, a, so- a Soviet uh, cipher clerk in Ottawa, who blew the lid to the Canadians that there was a massive spying ring in the Manhattan Project. And so Jeffries Jones uh, says, however, in its desperation to win back the ground it had lost in turf wars, the FBI distorted its counter-espionage mission. On the pretext that, pretext that some spies had been communists, the assumption was made that treason was generally leftist in character. This was an archaic assumption, as Soviet spy masters, once having been bumbled, decided it would be foolish to continue with readily identifiable, ideologically motivated spies. In future, most American traitors would betray their country for money, not principle. The FBI's contribution to McCarthyism, and here Jeffrey Jones used the term in its broadest sense, helped to drive millions of Americans into cringe mode. It contributed to a climate of opinion that helped the Bureau to escape public censure, its infractions of civil liberties, its reluctance to fight organised crime, and its obstruction of national security coordination. All of these went unchecked at the height of the era. So, I mean, the FBI, unlike Joe McCarthy, is one man, but with a loud voice. The FBI is a huge state organisation. But also, Joe McCarthy is given free run of the Senate for a couple of years. That's hardly an insignificant you know, like institution in itself. But I mean, and also, you've got the power of the House... You know, an American activities committee as well. I would argue that in terms of persecuting communists and engaging in anti-communist action, or persecution of leftists in general, I think the FBI is by far a more powerful institution than the Senate, even when compared, for example, to the House Committee on American Activities. The FBI has greater influence, takes greater action. I mean, Hoover develops a vast database of subversives mostly leftist in character. I think it's hundreds of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of Americans are kept on Hoover's list mm-hmm. of subversives, you know, tabulated according to their political affiliations, their supposed affiliations, their supposed alignment with different organisations. So they have this vast database of information as well. That, And when we come back to this, Hoover also helps to feed information to McCarthy. Mm-hmm. Really, you know, McCarthy is using a lot of information the FBI are handing him. So, I mean, if, if um, rewind a second, and, uh, when you were, you know, sort of 
introducing why you think Hoover is important. And you, you touched on, you know, Elizabeth Bentley, uh, Klaus Fuchs, um, and there was, there was another one you mentioned. Igor Gushenko. Yeah, so all ones that were found to be Soviet spies. Um, so is this communist witch hunt justified, in a sense? I mean, because, you know, essentially it's called a Cold War because there is, in a sense, you know, it's sort of a wartime that's going on. Um, so is it not right and proper that there should be this fear of, you know, a ring of communist spies? You know, I mean, like, like you said, you know, Klaus Fuchs helped the, the Russians get the atomic bomb. But I think this is, this is the point that, uh, for example, Catherine Olmsted makes in her book Real Enemies. Yes, there were Soviet spies. The Manhattan Project was riddled with Soviet espionage. Absolutely no one denies that. And there were spies, or there were spies, agents, and people who passed information to the Soviet The Manhattan government. Project being about building the nuclear bomb. Yeah, yes, within yes. American government. However, by the time McCarthy appears on the stage, as Jeffrey Jones points out, the spy networks are gone. The key figures have all been arrested, the spy rings have been rounded up, and the Soviets have quickly realised that relying on ideologically motivated spies who believe in communism is no longer a goer. They will resort to, as he points out, paying people, and you end up uh, in the later period, in the, kind of the 80s and into the 90s, uh, you end up with people being brought into the open like Aldrich Ames and Robert Hansen, who did it for money. Is it, is it not understandable though? Because I mean, so... Like you're saying Olmsted said by about 1940s, 49, you know, that these spy rings have been eviscerated. But in 1949, 50, you know, you have, she admits, you know, there was a series of terrifying events for Americans, like kind of before, you know, you had the supposed loss of China, even though, like, I think we can all agree that America never owned it in the first place, um, to, to the communists and Mao. Um, you have, you know, the Soviets attaining the nuclear bomb, um, later revealed with the help of American spies, as we've discussed. And you have the conviction of Alger Hiss, you know, the kind of famous uh, case where Alger Hiss and the State, State Department official is found to have been uh, guilty of being a Soviet spy despite... I have to correct you there. Mm. Hiss was never found guilty of being a spy. He was convicted of perjury. In by implication. He wasn't by, by implication. implication. And he now you're just dealing in semantics. He had fed information to the Soviets, but he was never convicted of being a Soviet spy. Yeah, so... What, what, at this point, this is obviously when Joe McCarthy enters the stage, you know, with his famous speech in 1949 in Wheeling, Virginia, where, you know, he accuses the American State Department of having 205 card-carrying communists before he, he later changes it to 57. Is it fair, does McCarthy inspire this widespread fear, or is he tapping into a sentiment that's already there? Like, is, is he just riding the crest of a wave that any senator could have ridden, he, or is McCarthy an especial case? He jumps on the bandwagon for electoral advantage. I mean, your, your, your point about, kind of, yes, there were, so there were spies in the Manhattan Project, all that kind of thing, but these genuine spying conspiracies, if you want to use that term, get wound up into this hysterical conspiracy theory that you pointed out, the, the loss of China, that certain people in America go, America... We supported Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists, the anti-communists. There is no way with American support they could have lost. There must be someone or a group of people working inside American government to subvert American policy. That's the only way this could have happened. So they believe in this conspiracy theory. And uh, I'll go back to kind of, you know, uh, Olmsted uh, here. You know, it was the 
the conspiracy began at Pearl Harbor, continued at Yalta, and achieved its greatest victory uh, with the communist takeover of China. Uh, and you know, a contemporary commentator uh, said, the sheer wickedness of this is so appalling that it is difficult to credit. But then, I mean, Olmsted goes on, I think, quite rightly to say, in promoting their conspiracy theories, McCarthy and his supporters cleverly exploited old and new anxieties about America's internal enemies. From the start, the Irish-American McCarthy explicitly portrayed himself as the enemy of the self-satisfied, lazy, anglophile American plutocracy. McCarthyism, he said proudly, is Americanism with its sleeves rolled. Mm -hmm. Many of the traitors, in air quotes, targeted by McCarthy were actually middle-class graduates of public schools in the Midwest. But McCarthy and his supporters tried to conflate the hundreds of State Department employees with their dapper boss, Dean Aitchison. According to McCarthy, Aitchison was the Red Dean of Fashion, who sported a lace handkerchief, a silk glove and a Harvard accent. Conservative congressmen loved to portray Aitchison as an arrogant dandy who was out of touch with the needs and values of real Americans. Yeah, so let's, let's, uh, let's pursue that a second. Um, do you want to... What... How is the Lavender Scare, as it's called, how does that play into McCarthyism or, sorry, the Great Fear or, you know, the Red Scare? How does, how does, or Hooverism, sorry, as you said, how does that play into... Well, call it, we can call it McCarthyism, we're fine, I'm okay. happy with that. Uh, the Lavender Scare is interesting because it's a part of this entire period that until the last, let's say, decade or so, has, has been relatively unacknowledged. And it's, the Lavender Scare is the persecution of, of homosexuals of gays and lesbians uh, working for federal agencies uh, during this time. And it actually, as historians have discovered, persecutes and causes to have removed from their jobs more people than the anti-communist witch hunts. Actually more destructive. About 5,000 lose but their government jobs through a loyalty programme. Yeah, about 5,000 people are because of accusations of homosexuality. Now, homosexuality is viewed then quite differently from the way you know we would view it now you know thankfully we're now in a, an era of many places having you know gay marriage and all that kind of thing but in the 1950s late 40s and 50s in america this was not the case and for many reasons you know homosexuality was persecuted in and of itself but also because it was conflated with communism mm-hmm. you know the word perversion communism was a perversion homosexuality was a perversion if I can give you a quote uh, from a senator, uh, Arthur, Arthur L. Miller, sorry, a congressman, uh, Arthur L. Miller, who's a Republican from Nebraska, and this is a statement he made to Congress uh, in the spring of 1950, okay, and I, I quote verbatim, okay, so start quote, just so no one knows, none of this is my words. Mr. Chairman, I realise that I'm discussing a very delicate subject. I cannot lay the bones bare like I could before medical colleagues. I would like to strip the fetid, stinking flesh off the skeleton of homosexuality and tell my colleagues of the House some facts of nature. I cannot expose all the putrid facts as it would offend the sensibilities of some of you. It will be necessary to skirt some of the edges, and I use certain Latin terms to describe some of these individuals. Make no mistake, Several thousand, according to police records, are now employed by the federal government. End quote. And that's just one congressman giving his opinion. So the, the Lavender Scare, David Johnson uh, wrote a book about it called The Lavender Scare. He really 
it was the first. It. it was the first big study of it. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's just because, like, talking about like gay history has been a taboo subject? Um, historians didn't feel like they could write about it. In I until recently. I think changing times. I mean, changing social attitudes, changing times, and I mean the the Red Scare. It's always associated with Cold War and anti-communism and all that kind of thing. And you know, Everett Dirksen. You know. You know a lot more about Dirksen than, than I do. A very notable figure in American Most politics. Most known in history for his role in passing the Civil Rights Act. But I mean, um, it, it was Dirksen that uh, really popularised uh, the term the Lavender Lads uh, as a term to describe uh, homosexuals, and he would he, that was applied to you know like members of the State Department and all these kind of things. You know, Dean Acheson and his colleagues and all these kind of things. So the accusation of you know, of homosexuality, of effeminacy, and all these kind of things were thrown about quite casually and used as part of the slander against people. You know, alongside it would have been an effective slander in the nineteen fifties. I mean, it would be an effective slander for a lot long time after that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but it's used alongside kind of describing someone as having communist leanings, being associated with communists at the same time. You would say, and you know, part of this is because of the belief that if you are homosexual, you are more open to subversion by dark forces. Like the you know Soviet intelligence agencies, that you're more easy to subvert mm-hmm. uh, and more willing to be subverted. All these ridiculous notions mm-hmm. that are passed around, and certain things do, you know, they give people this kind of conspiratorial thinking about you know, homosexuality and and what it means for you know, relationships with the with the spy agencies. Yeah. These nonsensical conspiratorial theories are given weight by. Isolated incidents of homosexuals being exposed as spies. You have the you know the case of the Cambridge spies in Britain, Burgess and Maclean. Uh, one homosexual, the other bisexual. But there you go. Mm-hmm. You know, say people. You know that proves it. And it's uh, actually homosexuals formed a very, very, very tiny percentage of all those who were exposed for you know spying or, or accused of that. In fact, below the average that you would expect in the population. Shock horror. Shock horror. Yeah. Who would have thought it was a complete load of nonsense? Yeah. But I think changing times have, have led to a reassessment of the red scare here and seeing the lavender scare is perhaps more destructive and more damaging to lives. Well I mean the other the other thing that undermines is the link to like, I mean Southern Democrats especially use this anti communist sentiment to undermine the civil rights movement, which is sort of bubbling up at this time, you know, it's it's dismissed as just at the control of communists who are just trying to undermine um, America at the time. So, I mean, the anti-communism, the threat in American life at this time is, is sort of over overwhelming. I mean, I'm sorry, overwhelming is probably not right, but, you know, it's insidious in many different issues, I think would be fair to say. Um, and, I mean, one of the things it does is it helps stop the kind of the liberal progressive policies that America had been pursuing under the New Deal because you know in many ways liberals and progressives are undermined um, by the connection with anti-communism and like many Democrats at this time chief among them John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson who will go on to be very important realize that they need to be seen as cold warriors in the extreme so that they don't get undermined as being tagged as being communist sympathisers when they try to pass liberal programmes. And I think that's, a, that's an excellent point, because we often kind of imagine anti-communism and the Red Scare as a product of you know, the fevered right-wing conservative imagination. But 
there is the rise of liberal anti-communism. Mm-hmm. It's a very important feature of this era. It's all kind of parts of the political spectrum are engaging. Hubert Humphrey, who was one of the most liberal senators ever, became yeah. a cold warrior. Like, you know, probably out of pragmatic reasons, you know, to, to do that. Um, and I mean, for example, the Vietnam War, often you, you can sort of attribute Johnson's, uh, you know, accelerating of it. Um, so that his great society wouldn't be undermined by conservatives saying, oh, look, you're losing in Vietnam, you're soft on communism. So, so what about McCarthy? Let's, mm-hmm. okay, let's turn for a moment, let's spend five minutes thinking about Joe McCarthy himself. because we you know, We've discussed the term McCarthyism, we've discussed anti-communism in general, the role of Hoover, all that kind of thing. Still to put forward my theory that it's perhaps you could call it Nixonism, but yeah. Um, we'll come to that in yeah. a moment, I hope. Yeah, uh, who, yeah so who was Joe McCarthy? Joe McCarthy, prior to February 1950, he was a fairly obscure junior senator from Wisconsin. Hadn't really done much of any great significance. Not a national figure. But he I can't st- remember the McCarthy Act. No, no. no. But he stands up at a meeting at Wheeling, West Virginia. So Senator McCarthy comes in and he has two speeches prepared uh, for this. Uh, and he chooses not to go. I think one of them was on Federal housing policy. Federal housing policy. I was going to say the federal deficit, but you're right, it's federal housing policy. Uh, so he doesn't give his... that could have launched them as well? Could have been a great speech on federal housing policy. He could have been seen as a major reformer. Exactly. He doesn't give his scintillating speech on federal housing policy, as fascinating as it might be. Uh, he gives his speech on communists in the State Department. And he has his bit of paper... I have, you know, I've got a list of 205 card-carrying communists working in the State Department. And, uh, and thereafter, he also sends, after this speech, sends a really didactic, hectoring letter to President Harry Truman about his accusations. And this is where you start seeing him changing the numbers and manipulating the evidence. And this is, that's McCarthy's tactics. He's loud, he's a bully. He likes the attention, he shouts people down, and he's totally unafraid of manipulating evidence and just making stuff up. And he was good at it. I mean, like, I mean, in, in 1954, for example, McCarthy came fourth in a Gallup poll of the most admired men in America. Um, or sorry, sorry, I chased that. Fourth in a poll of the most admired men in the world. I understood that, so... Yes, I think you were underselling McCarthy there a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I know. But... Do you, do you see McCarthy as, like, is there anything unique about him? Is it, is it, the, is it what eventually comes to undermine him, um, undermine him? You know, the famous quote in his downfall is from, you know, the Joseph Welsh um, and the army who says, you know, have you no sense of decency, sir, as, as McCarthy continues his attacks. Is it, is he's a special thing, just his willingness to go to any length to discredit people and just his willingness to lie and lie and lie until, you know, he probably didn't even know what was the truth by the, by the end. I think his cleverness was to combine long-standing anxieties. Uh, and I think Olmsted says, old anxieties about rich men in fancy suits. Uh, you know, kind of like you know Dean Aitchison, kind of upper crust, well-educated. Whereas McCarthy's kind of salt of the arse, Irish American. Yep. Close ties to the Kennedys. Yeah, Robert but, Kennedy worked for McCarthy at one point. Yeah, but McCarthy, as you know, the solid representative of real America, he combines these anxieties about you know rich men in fancy suits 
with kind of post-World War II fears about communism and homosexuality and the loss of American power and influence and all that thing, and binds them together in an attractive conspiracy theory. And at this point, I want to bring in one of the most interesting histories of it. You know, we've mentioned his name before in these podcasts, Richard Hofstadter. You know, and he talks about that McCarthy is an example of the paranoid style in American politics. You know, this sort of where everything's presented as sort of a conflict between absolute good and absolute evil. And you know, he cites examples of the populists in the eighteen hundreds, the Texas Catholic conspiracy, uh, even further back, and even like revolutionary concepts of it. And you know, Hofstadter is is like we've discussed this before. He's having a rant. He's writing at the time that Barry Goldwater was running for president um, in 1964, you know, kind of product of the right wing um, of the Republican Party. And, you know, Hofstad is clearly angry about this. And to discredit Goldwater, in a sense, he ties all these paranoid movements together, including the right wing uh, conservatives at the time. I mean, do you buy Hofstadter's argument that there, there is this paranoid style of American politics? I mean, he says there's also... You could, there's worldwide examples, um, but he's an American historian, so he's discussing America. Once you get past his, you know, to be honest, kind of spittle-flecked rant. Vitriolic. Vitriolic. <laughs> there's a, that's the that's most charitable thing. I mean, I like the paranoid style. I think it's a great article. It's really entertaining. It's not, it's not great research history. It's essentially Hofstadter going off on one about people he really doesn't like. But I think at the core of it, I think Hofstadter identifies something, and it's the idea of the conspiratorial mindset of believing a conspiracy theory because it explains so much. And I think that's where it's useful to consider it's not great historiography, it's not great history, but it provides us a useful lens. And I think reading Hofstadter alongside Kathy Olmsted's book, Real Enemies, which explores the actual influence of conspiracy theory on American democracy and trust in government, mm-hmm. which is very rigorously uh, researched and analysed. I think Olmsted provides almost a, a very rigorous historical you know, successor to, to Hofstadter. And Hofstadter was kind of right in certain points. He was right about the conspiratorial mode of thinking and how it influences the way people interact with the world and with government and all that kind of thing. So it's good to read Hofstadter and then read Olmsted and go, ah, here's a really well-researched, really well-analysed kind of analogue to what Hofstadter is saying. There's a kernel, he's onto a kernel of something in there, once you get past the vitriolic ranting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. I I think Hofstadter is brilliant to read, um, especially. Just kind of makes you think in a different way than the kind of normal historiography you get, but it's a brilliant companion piece to Olmsted's more highly researched work anyway. Mm. So turning away from historiography for a moment, I'd, I'd like to quiz you, but something you've talked to, uh, to me about before, and uh, it sounds like uh, it sounds like a John Waters film, actually, uh, you know, the great American uh, kind of alternative film director. Mm-hmm. So tell me about Nixon and the Pink Lady, which sounds like it would make a great film. <laughs> it probably would make a great film, actually. Well. Well, I mean, actually, I'm going to go back before Nixon and the Pink Lady to how Nixon first got into Congress. Um, Richard Nixon, obviously, for those of you that were born yesterday, becomes president in 1969. But he's also vice president under Dwight Eisenhower um, from 1953 onwards. Now, Nixon gets into Congress 
after the war running in the kind of Orange County area of California by by basically portraying his opponent Jerry Voorhis as a communist sympathizer, you know, as, as you know, allowing communists to flourish in government. And um, so he gets elected to Congress. And in, in 1950, he takes on Helen Gahan Douglas, um, and who for to, to, to be the senator from California. Um, and Gahan Douglas is a former actress, but she's, you know, she's a pr pretty impressive politician. She manages to stave off huge attacks from her own party. You know, the, the, the senator who is retiring, who is a Democrat, says that she is giving comfort to Soviet tyranny and says all sorts of horrible sexist things about her. So the Democrats are no angels <laughs> at this point, I should say. I can imagine this must be uh, a tough time for for women aiming to get to the highest levels of politics, you know, a senatorial position. Oh, she must have, the attacks hard, yeah. must have been fairly vitriolic, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you need just some of the newspaper clippings. If you want, I don't want to say them out loud. Go and read Greg Marshall's account of Tricky Dick and the Pink Lady. Um, it's, it's a really good kind of, there's a chapter of it available online. Um, and <laughs> so basically, uh, I mean, Nixon labels her the Pink Lady and rides this anti-communist wave to, to success. And he'd also been a big player on the committee that was prosecuting um, Alger Hiss, who we discussed earlier. But he did it in a more like, Less, he would say things just as brash, but without attracting quite the opprobrium that Joseph McCarthy would. Um, so that when McCarthy fell, Nixon wasn't tarred too much. And interestingly, one of Gahan Douglas's quotes from her campaign was, she said towards the end, when perhaps she realised she was going to lose, she was like, you know, what happens to me personally isn't very important, but that pipsqueak, as in Nixon, <laughs> has his eye on the White House, and if he ever gets there, God help us all. <laughs> How right she was! What a perceptive analysis. How have you known Nixon opened the door to China? Fantastic president. Only Nixon could go to China. <laughs> um, but I think we should maybe think, think about wrapping that up there. Um, is there any final things you want to say about McCarthyism that isn't about the word itself? I mean, I think it's important to understand it as... It's not about McCarthy. Uh, Anti-communism in America is widespread, driven in large part by the actions of the government and the actions of the FBI, so the institutions of government. And it becomes founded in a conspiracy theory based on actual conspiracies. There were Soviet spies. But it, it takes on a life of its own. It goes beyond its factual basis and into the realms of paranoid fantasy that destroys the lives of thousands of people, thousands of innocent people who have done nothing more than either uh, have a political viewpoint that is different from the popular consensus or happen to be of a different sexuality. And it destroys the lives of a lot of people. Which is a downbeat note to end on. Yes, I'm actually trying at this point to think of something happy to say. Um, what are we going to look at in the next podcast? Lyndon Johnson. That'll, give you, that'll, that'll give you so, some joy. For those of you that don't know, Mark is a big fan of Lyndon Johnson. He's writing his PhD thesis on it, finishing his PhD thesis on it right now. And uh, you'll probably hear a lot of Mark's voice in the next podcast. <laughs> well, I thought you said we were going to try and not end on, on a downbeat note. Hey. But uh, anyway... 
So thanks again for listening. Um, we really enjoyed chatting away about McCarthy today. Uh, sorry, McCarthyism, Hooverism, and the widespread anti-communist <laughs> fear. Um, and on that note, it is goodbye for me. And it's goodbye for me. See you next time. Yeah, cheerio. We're living in a country that's the finest place on earth. But some folks don't appreciate this land that gave them birth. I hear that up in Washington they're having an awful fuss. Cause communists and spies are making monkeys out of us. The bureaus and departments have been busy night and day. They're figuring out just how we gave our secrets all away. And Congress has appointed a committee, so they said, to find out who's American and who's a low-down red. I'm no communist, and I'll tell you that right now. I believe a man should own his own house and car and cow. I like this private ownership, and I want to be left alone. Let the government run its business, and let me run my own. Music